Real quick before I start the show today, I wanted to let you know that I now have a YouTube channel and I'm going to have new episodes of the show up on the channel as well as some short little clips here and there. You can find that at fairlyimportant.com slash YouTube or you can just go to YouTube and type in the words fairly important. I'll be sure to have a link in the show notes. Okay, on to the show. Not too long ago, Dr. Dermot Carney started getting contacted by women who were in desperate need of his help. And the phone calls were always essentially the same. My baby is about to die. I've run out of options. Can you help me? And he responded by doing what any good doctor would do, really what any decent human being would do. He helped them. One of his colleagues, Dr. Eileen Riley, was also helping some of these women and helping some of these children. And we'll talk about her today some as well. They both saved children's lives. They both gave moms who were completely out of hope a second chance that their baby might live. And then a medical tribunal in the United Kingdom stepped in and told them they were forbidden to continue doing this. Needless to say, Dr. Carney, Dr. Riley, and the moms and the babies who are going to be affected by this, they need your prayers. Hey, thanks so much for joining me for a fairly important podcast. I'm Travis Rusco, and this is episode number 29. And today I am joined by Dr. Dermot Carney. He is a cardiologist in the UK. And Dr. Carney kind of caught my attention here a few weeks back. I saw a story in Life News originally, I believe it was. And then I saw another story and another story about this gentleman who he serves as a cardiologist and he's been in cardiology since 1989 but he is also pro-life he's catholic and he has a passion to help women who have begun the process of a diy at-home abortion which there may be a lot of people that hear me talk about this and not even realize that that's a thing but he has felt led to do this and has been doing this for a little while now. And I'm going to let Dr. Carney share here in just a moment about his current situation. But the story that I read at Life News was that a medical tribunal in the UK has decided that they are not in favor of Dr. Carney doing this treatment at this point in time. And they have suspended him for 18 months um, where he is now, for the time being at least, he is not able to help these women and to help these children. And I know that he can explain it a little bit better than I can. So I'm going to go ahead and welcome Dr. Carney. Thank you for being here. And and as I said, I, I gave my best shot at kind of introducing your case there. But maybe if you want to take a quick moment to introduce yourself with a with a short bio and, and, and also just a, a very brief explanation here of how this how this all started um, with you getting involved in in helping women in this situation. Sure, thank you. Uh, you did you did a pretty good job. 
Um, I've been uh, qualified as a doctor since 1989. I've been uh, working in cardiology since 1994-95. I also do general medicine, and that's quite important when it comes to one of the um, accusations made against me that I'm working outside of my area of expertise. Because, but, but um, the, the the work that we do in trying to help these ladies is very much a, an emergency medical situation, not necessarily confined to to gyne- that shouldn't be necessarily confined to gynecologists. Uh, we feel any any doctor, any qualified doctor who knows a little bit about pharmacology and physiology and anatomy should be able to to um, you know, provide that type of service. So, as you correctly stated, uh, some women, when they have begun the process of uh, starting a medical abortion, that is by taking the abortion pills rather than than a surgical abortion. Now, in the in the U.S., still, I, th- I believe that it's roughly maybe 50% of abortions are, are surgical, 50% are medical. Whereas in in the United Kingdom, uh, the the vast majority, about 80 to 85% nowadays, are medical abortions. That's they're induced by taking medications or drugs. The first drug they, that the lady takes is a medication called mifepristone. Now that specifically is a antagonist to progesterone. Progesterone is a hormone produced naturally in pregnancy and is essential for maintaining the pregnancy. Without progesterone, a pregnancy, the lining of the womb cannot be maintained. So mifepristone prevents the natural action of normal progesterone. Um, And then they're meant either 24 to 48 hours later, take a second medication, which is a prostaglandin medication, which causes contraction of the of the womb. Or that's the, the, the main um, action of it. It causes contraction of the woman, causes expulsion of any of the, you know, the, the baby or the other products of conception, the placenta, uh, that, that might still be present there. Some of them actually pass the, the, um, the, 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 the baby and the other products of conception even after just taking the, the mifepristone. So what, what we, what has been discovered, and it was largely through work in the, the United States, uh, in the so just before 2010, so around between 2006 2010, a number of doctors who were approached by women um, to help them because they had taken the first abortion pill, but for whatever reason had changed their mind. They said, "I, I regret what I've done. I would like to try to preserve my pregnancy, save my baby. Uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing when I took the first pill. I was under pressure. I was under coercion, or whatever. And now I, I realize I want to save the baby. And y- using a little bit of scientific knowledge and physiology, they, the doctors, uh, in particular Dr. Delgado and Dr. Harrison, Matthew Harrison, George Delgado, Mary Davenport, uh, three of the key players in at the early stages of this, realized that, well, if the first abortion pill, mifepristone, if that if its main action is blocking the natural uh, progesterone effect by binding to the progesterone receptors and preventing progesterone having its effect, they wondered, well, if we can give the, the lady some promptly give her some progesterone in high doses to try and overcome the effect of the mifepristone, maybe, just maybe, we might be able to you know, prevent miscarriage or prevent abortion. Because that's basically what, what the abortion pills do. They, they induce a miscarriage. Um, and so, so that was the theory. And they tried it, and they tried it again, and it worked several times in, in, in succession. And then um, they had a number of anecdotal and a number of small series of cases where they had tried this medication and it seemed to work. And then they established a service around 2012, which has become nationwide throughout the United States at this stage. And as uh, the reason I'm involved, it has spread to some other countries as well. With this knowledge of 
abortion pill reversal can in some cases. It doesn't always work. Now, before I go any further, I have to be careful here, and I will explain the situation that, that I'm in, but I'm not allowed at present. There are a number of um, restrictions to my medical practice, and the main one is that I must not prescribe, administer, or recommend progesterone for abortion reversal treatments. And that came about as a result of um, the, the, the issues which we'll discuss in a short while. Uh, so I have to be careful what, what I say or I could end up in, in a little bit of trouble. But the, the, the bottom line is, and this is, this is a, a scientific fact, it's a, a medical fact, it's not necessarily a promotional I- issue, that if a woman has taken the first abortion pill, Mifepristone, and if she regrets it for whatever reason, changes her mind and decides, I want to keep my baby, I want to preserve my pregnancy, if she does nothing, if she just waits and hopes that everything will be okay but doesn't seek any help, there is about a 20 to 25% chance that the baby might still survive. So it's about a 75 to 80% chance that the abortion will be complete with just the first pill alone. If she takes a second pill, so if she decides, I'm going to go ahead with the abortion, there is a 98 to 99% chance that the abortion will be complete. So there's a less than 2% chance that the baby will survive if she takes both pills. But if she just takes the one, changes her mind, uh, there is a chance that about 20 to 25% of babies might still survive. If she receives progesterone given promptly, and ideally within 24 hours, but even up to 72 hours, at least this is what the studies have shown, um, there is about a f- at least a 45 to 50% chance that the baby might survive. That the, the studies from the, the George Delgado study suggest that that can be even up to 68%. We haven't been able to achieve that uh, level of success in the UK, largely because the service is unknown. Uh, nobody knows about it. Very few people know about it. In fact, any of the women who have come to myself and my other colleague who has been doing this have heard about it through, the, through an internet search, and they get an American helpline called Heartbeat International Abortion Pill Reversal. They contact the helpline, they explain that they're in the United Kingdom, and they're, they're put in touch with myself or my colleague, Dr. Eileen Riley, who, well, up until recently, the two of us had been running this service. So we've, we've achieved a success rate, maintaining pregnancy of about 50%, maybe slightly more, 50, 52%, whereas the, with sort of the, the best possible treatment, we if we were getting referrals earlier, that possibly could be improved up to 65, 68%. And so that's a, that's a, just a fact. Um, I don't, do you want me to go into my specific issue or do you want to ask other questions about the, the actual process itself? So yeah, I actually, I would love to, uh, to hear a little bit more about your specific case. And, and I know that when I was looking at the, um, the Daily Mail article, I believe it was specifically MSI Reproductive Choices, which uh, used to be Marie, St- Marie Stopes International. They were the one who I believe had kind of brought up the complaint, if I understand correctly. But if you can, if you can get into that a little bit. And I know too, Dr. Kearney, uh, I had had some members of the audience who have submitted some questions. And I also had some folks I'm active on a number of different uh, subreddits uh, online, specifically pro-life subreddits and conservative subreddits. And and one of the people wanted to make sure that we were kind of getting both sides of this. So if you can share what their particular concern was, because for me, and I think for a lot of pro-lifers, we see what's happening here and we think 
well, he's, he's helping these women, he's helping these babies. But, but if you can share your story and a little bit about what they are saying the problem is with this treatment option. Sure. That's, that's good. Um, well, myself and Dr. Riley, I have to credit Dr. Riley because uh, she was the first in the UK to um, do the, give this service in, in any sort of organised way because well, well, I was aware of it. Um, as, as you mentioned, I'm a member of the um, Catholic Medical Association and we were first approached in 2014 by one of the pro-life organisations in London who already at that stage were already receiving not numerous, but a number of inquiries from women who had changed their mind and they had nobody to turn to. There was no no service. The, the National Health Service in England did not provide any service. The Royal College of Obstetricians did not recommend any treatment for women who changed their mind. Their their only attitude, their only um, advice was, well, if you change your mind, then just don't take the second pill, which le- left them maybe with about a 20% chance, 20 to 25% chance. I probably should say that it depends to, to a large extent on the stage of gestation. So if a woman is already eight, nine, ten weeks pregnant when she takes the first pill and if she doesn't take the second pill, then there's a, a greater chance that the baby will survive rather than if she's only four, five, six weeks pregnant. That's important. Although we ha- there has been successful uh, reversal or rescue treatments with you know, even less than five weeks and sometimes failures with you know, over ten weeks. Um, so the... We were approached in 2014 and we, we decided we would look into it. I have to admit myself and my colleagues uh, on the Council of the Catholic Medical Association were a little bit sceptical. We didn't know anything about this. Um, we thought it probably won't work. Is there going to be dangers if the baby survives? Will there be some congenital abnormalities because they've, the mother has taken mifepristone? Um, will there be a risk to the mother? Uh, w- w- how can we practically get treatment to women because it has to be done in an emergency situation and if it's not available through their normal ER departments or emergency centres you know, how can we get treatment to women uh, unless we've got a, a large network of doctors doing this so we had a lot, of answer, a lot of questions that needed to be answered we actually spent five years researching the issue I read everything I possibly could written by George Delgado, Matthew Harrison, Mary Davenport and anybody else. And I also read from the other side because I noticed that there was opposition uh, coming from a number of prominent uh, pro-abortion people within the US. And I read their sides of the argument as well. Um, but eventually the, the calls were coming through more and more from the pro-life organizations. And in particular, uh, we got another call in 2018 to plead with us. You know, We're getting more and more girls looking for help. And at that point, the only option that could be offered to them um, and it's, it may sound strange to people in, in the U.S., but <laughs> the only option was that the, the pro-life organizations would take the girls to basically a backstreet clinic. It was almost the, the reversal of backstreet abortion. They had to take them to a backstreet private clinic where they would secretly be given progesterone. The pro-life organizations would end up paying vast amounts of money, up to a thousand pounds, which is quite a lot of money uh, for, for the service. And sometimes it might work and sometimes it mightn't. And there was the, the pro-life organizations weren't allowed to any follow up to know how they what the success rates were. But that's the only option that they had. So we felt we had to do something. So um, it was, as I mentioned, it was my colleague Eileen Riley who discovered that in the UK we can prescribe remotely. That means we can if we get a call from a lady in one part of the country, I can take a call. I'm in the north of, of England. If I get a call from someone in the south of England, I can. And if once I've explained the situation to her and the 
success rates and failure rates and the complications and get her consent, basically fully informed consent. I can then discuss her case with uh, without giving too much of her confidential information away with her local pharmacist, ask them, do they have progesterone in stock? And if they do, are they happy to accept an email prescription? So that has become a more common form of prescribing medication, certainly in the UK over the last couple of years. And particularly with the COVID situation, most pharmacists are happy to accept remote email prescriptions as long as they then receive the hard copy, the written original prescription by post within 48 to 72 hours. And that, that's, so that's the way we, we overcame the, the problem of distance. So what would happen typically is a, a young woman would have taken the mifepristone, changed her mind, would contact the abortion pill reversal US-based uh, helpline, uh, would explain that she was in the United Kingdom and the one of the trained nurses from Heartbeat International would contact either myself or Eileen, would send us a WhatsApp message typically or a phone call to say we have a young woman in Birmingham or Liverpool or London uh, who is seeking reversal help. Are you able to help? And usually we would, within a very short space of time, within a few minutes or half an hour, we once we had received the contact details, uh, which were given with the, with the young woman's permission, we would then contact her and discuss the possibility of, of abortion pill reversal. Um, and that's the way it was going. So we were doing that very innocently, maybe naively, because that's, it's not an ideal service. Ideally, these sort of things should be regulated and properly, uh, properly regulated and audited. And we, we were doing our own audit, our own regulation, and we were going to report at the end of 12 months, you know, what our results were and our complication rates and so on. So we were going to be very upfront and totally honest about this. Um, but then we, unknown to us from January of this year, um, word got round to some of the abortion providers, particularly, as you mentioned, Mary Stopes International, MSI, um, who, for whatever reason, uh, took a strong objection to this. Now, I think it's mainly ideological. I, my only, I, 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 nobody can explain to me why groups such as Mary Stopes or the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, BPAS, or uh, other pro-abortion groups would, would want to deny a woman's choice because that's really what we were doing the woman has made a decision she's changed her mind she's now made another decision we were respecting her choice second time around so a lot of the groups say that they're very much in favor of of women's autonomy reproductive choices and uh, we were respecting that and uh, so it, it, it seems strange why people would object to what we were doing my only the only thing i can guess is that we were a threat to the service that they were providing we certainly weren't impacting largely on their business because there are, for example, in the UK, there are approximately 15,000 15, medical abortions every month. Um, there's 210,000 a year, and most of them are, are um, medical abortions. So about 15,000, between 12 and 15,000 a month. And we were getting you know, at, at most you know, 20 calls a month. So it's not as if we were having a major impact financially on their services. So it has to be that we were seen as some sort of ideological threat because um, it was opening up the question that or opening up the idea that some women are changing their mind. And then once you once that becomes clear, women are changing their mind. The next question is, well, why are they changing their mind? And the only answer I have to that is because they're not getting proper counselling.
and a number of the women that we have had to tell us that they, they don't get asked, you know, are you sure this is what you want to do? Are you under any pressure? Are you being coerced into this by somebody else? So the, the absence or lack of or very poor counselling, while it may not be um, ubiquitous or everywhere, uh, there may be some services that, that do give good and proper counselling. I very much doubt it, but the, the overall... That's the impression I have is that that's the only objection that that the abortion providers could have. We're challenging their the free run that they have basically at providing abortion without anybody challenging. So this is a new challenge to them that that isn't welcome. That because now they they use to to you ask me to to look at from their point of view the arguments that they use against us are number one that it's uh, that we're prescribing remotely that we're not seeing the patient. Now that is a little bit inconsistent. To be um, to be gentle with them or hypocritical, if you want to be a little bit more harsh, because the vast majority of abortion pills nowadays are uh, prescribed over the phone, following a phone call without a proper without a, a face-to-face consultation. So number one, it's, it's so it's remote. So that's the one of the excuses, but that's easily easily argued against because it's exactly what what they were doing. And there's no law against it. You're allowed to prescribe remotely as long as you understand what you're doing and you've looked into the risks and benefits and so on. And uh, you, you believe that this is in the best interest of the patient, and you're not forcing it on the patient. And number two, that there were that we were using an unlicensed medication, and that is true. Progesterone is licensed for a number of indications. Uh, it's licensed for use in miscarriage. It's licensed for use uh, supporting infertility treatments. It's licensed for use for women who have low progesterone levels. It's, it's used in hormone replacement treatment. So it has a number of licenses, but it's not licensed for abortion pill reversal. However, many medications are used off license in this in this way because uh, not every medication, like when a medication comes out first, it's discovered that it's useful for a certain thing. And then someone discovers later on, oh, it can actually be used for something else as well. And it's very difficult for pharmaceutical companies to get a license for every single possible use of, of their medications. It's very expensive and time consuming. And it's very important, I think, to point out here that misoprostol, the second abortion pill, is not licensed for abortion. It is a drug used commonly or in the past was used commonly for management of peptic ulcer disease, so ulcers in your stomach, uh, but is not licensed for abortion use, but it is very effective at inducing abortion, but particularly by causing uterine contractions. Uh, another one that's worth mentioning is a, a, quite a dangerous medication called methotrexate, which is used in a number of inflammatory disorders, particularly rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, but And that is commonly used nowadays as a medical treatment for ectopic pregnancy. That's widely um, advocated by the Royal College of Obstetricians, Gynecologists, um, but it's not, it's not licensed for, for that use. But they've realized that, uh, again, looking at the, the science behind it, that it, that it was going to be useful. So they, when they put it to the test, they found that it was an effective way to, to medically treat ectopic pregnancy. That, there, that might raise some ethical issues. It certainly does on my, my count. But it's, the important point there is that many medicines are used off license and including a number of medications commonly used by the very people who are objecting to us using progesterone uh, off license. The next issue that the the the, uh, the next point that they try to make is that there is no evidence that this is effective, and they point that there is to the absence of any large-scale randomised controlled trial. And again, once again, they're true. There isn't any large-scale randomised controlled trial. And again, that would have very obvious ethical issues. Um, if if we were to do a trial, a properly organised trial in that way, it would mean taking, um, you know a few hundred women, maybe a few thousand women, who 
uh, were pregnant and took the first abortion pill, but then decided that they wanted to save their pregnancy. So we would have to randomize them into one half would receive the progesterone treatment, the treatment that we now know actually works, and the other half we'd have to give them placebo or some other treatment that we feel is well is probably not going to work and compare the results at the end of the, the trial. And there would be major ethical concerns in, in doing that. Um, I suspect that there are people who would be very happy to do that, and there was one attempt at a, which I'll talk about in a moment when we come to sort of dangers and risks. There was one attempt made at a, at a randomised control trial that was abandoned quite early. Uh, what we do have, however, is observational studies. So, so as I mentioned, people like George Delgado, Mary Davenport, Matthew Harrison, and and many others. Uh, were, were using this treatment over several years and they were seeing that this was very effective more often than not, more than 50% of cases. And then they did a small case series initially at around 2012, published that. I think it was only about four or five cases. Um, but that, that is, it's, it's a valid scientific study, but not a large scale one. And then they looked at all of the number, they did an observational study, uh, which was, or an observational paper, which was based on uh, collecting Lots of small-scale studies that have been done over the years, without necessarily having a a a, a control group, a group that would would have received um, the placebo or some other form of treatment that would be less effective than progesterone. However, to overcome that, they looked at other studies that had used mifepristone by itself in inducing um, abortion or inducing miscarriage, and they noticed that at best, mifepristone Per se, if you don't take misoprostol, as a there's a survival rate of the of the embryo or fetus or, or baby, the survival rate will be 20 to 25 percent. It was actually around 24 percent, but they they put it at 25 just to give them a little bit of extra leeway. Um, and then they compared their results in the observation studies, and then looking at different ways that progesterone could be given either orally or vaginally through pessaries or intramuscularly through injections they found that there was a much higher success rate with um, given progesterone compared to women who had mifepristone and didn't receive any rescue treatment with progesterone. And then they published that case series, I think, 2018. And that's the, that's the best available evidence that, that we have. Now, it isn't, it's not the best, it's not the, the strongest form of evidence, but it is the best available evidence that, that, that we have to date. Um, more importantly than that, however, is that over the last, since 2012, more than 2,000 healthy babies have been born to mothers who had taken mifepristone and who regretted their decision and subsequently received progesterone treatment in one form or another. And they're the figures that are um, published by Heartbeat International. They're the ones we know of. So there's been at least 2,000. I believe in Canada there might be another few hundred people, a few hundred babies, sorry, uh, cases. Uh, so there are well over 2,000 live births uh, without any increased risk of congenital abnormalities for the baby and without any increased risk to the mother. Progesterone has been used successfully in pregnancy for more than 50 years for some of those other indications that I mentioned earlier. And we know that progesterone is safe for the mother and for the baby in pregnancy. What wasn't known was if the mother has taken mifepristone, is that going to be safe for the baby? And there's, uh, having more than 2,000 live births uh, without any increased risk is is very good evidence. And you put that into, for example, the there's great excitement in recent weeks, certainly in the UK, there was one of the main headline stories in relation to the COVID vaccines. Uh, there isn't any 
uh, there isn't any great or large-scale randomised controlled trials looking at COVID vaccines, and yet they're being advocated by governments and health authorities all over the world. And particularly this with this new Delta variant, Indian variant that we've had in this country and probably spreading in other parts too. Um, it was initially there was concern that the vaccines that people have already received against the, the initial strains of the COVID uh, virus, you know, would would those vaccines would they would they hold out against this this Indian variant, this new variant? And once again, we're, we're, we're being told with these jubilant headlines that um, the observational studies uh, have shown uh, and the, the, the real life cases have shown that, yes, these vaccines are at least 90 percent or 85 to 90 percent effective against the Indian variant. So, again, it's sort of very inconsistent that in some situations, observational studies are accepted as being you know, good evidence for supporting a healthcare policy. Um, and real life events. And remember, the, the, these vaccines have only been around for a matter of months or even weeks in some situations. And yet we're getting very excited about them. Whereas the uh, abortion rescue treatment using uh, progesterone has been around for nine years, like, at least in a, in a structured form, actually available more than nine years, but in, in an organized structured um, form has been around for much longer than, than the COVID vaccines. And yet we're, the evidence we have accumulated over those years of safety and efficacy are being dismissed as being that there's no evidence that that, that, there's, that this is effective. And yet we would argue that that's not the case. The final point, and what's got them excited in the, the, by, by them I mean the pro-abortion people who oppose abortion pill reversal or re rescue treatment. I prefer to use rescue because it's not strictly speaking a reversal treatment. We're not reversing. We're trying to rescue the situation. So the the, the, the opponents of the rescue treatment. They're very, they got very excited over a study that was published in uh, January 2020 in one of the, the major obstetrics gynecology uh, journals by a, a self-proclaimed opponent of abortion pill reversal called Mitchell Crinan from University of Sacramento in California, who was determined to, do, to demonstrate that uh, this form of treatment was, was, didn't work. Okay. So he set up, it, it sounded on, in, at face value, it looked like it was not a bad idea. He decided he only needed 40 women, which seems like a very, very low number for a trial to demonstrate a difference between two different forms of treatment. But that's what he decided following his statistical uh, predictions that 40 women were, would be all that would be necessary, 20 in, in two groups. Um, these were women who were all going to have uh, scheduled uh, surgical abortion. And they were between, I think, six and nine weeks pregnant. So they were going to have a surgical abortion. But he asked them or persuaded them or whatever to take part in a trial that would only last for 15 days. And at the end of it, they would have their surgical abortion anyway. So they were all given mifepristone on day one. And on day two, they were given either progesterone or a placebo. And then they were followed up to see, and there was 20 in each, there was going to be 20 in each group. They stopped recruiting after 12 women had been recruited six in each six in each arm on the on the um well they stopped on the on the excuse that three of the women had to attend emergency departments because of major hemorrhage and now i can tell you with any woman who takes mifepristone uh, under 10 11 12 weeks will bleed there's always going to be bleeding because that's what it does it induces uh, miscarriage 
Um, and then the misoprostol that's taken one or two days later will will finish the the abortion off. So they will. All, I tell all of the women that we've had, you will almost certainly bleed. It's very very uncommon for women in the first trimester who've taken mifepristone not to bleed. Some will bleed more heavily than others, and we do have to acknowledge that. And a, a small number of the women that we have had have required blood transfusions. However, in the context of, I mentioned that there are 15,000 medical abortions every month in the UK. And of the, of the ones we know of, there is at least 500 women per month, 500 women per month every month attending emergency departments in the UK with either hemorrhage, and these are women who have taken both abortion pills in, in the vast majority of cases, so hemorrhage or infection or retained products that might need to be um, re- by retained, like the, the, fet- the fetus of the embryo developing baby has died and they might ha- but hasn't been ex- expelled completely and might need to be removed by surgical means. So there are there are a number of complications even with the medical abortions that are properly carried out by taking the, the two drugs. So trying to claim that the uh, that, so the, the study was stopped, the Michel Crying study was stopped when three women had to attend. Two of them were in the placebo group, so they didn't receive progesterone. They received mifepristone and then 24 hours later received placebo. And one was in the progesterone group had received progesterone. Um, of the three, of those three women, one of them was significant enough to require a blood transfusion. The other two didn't require blood transfusion. They just were, need to be assessed and then they were allowed to, to go home. Um, so if you look at the figures, even though it's very small numbers, of oh, by the way, two women had voluntarily withdrawn from the trial after two or three days, one in the placebo group, one in the progesterone group. So that left 10 remaining in the trial, five in, in each arm. And if you look at it, uh, to correctly look at the figures, you say, okay, five, got, or five women got progesterone, five got placebo. Two women in the placebo group had significant hemorrhage. One in the progesterone group had a hemorrhage. One had a significant enough to require transfusion. That was in the placebo group. So in that, looking at it that way, progesterone basically halved. There was a, a less. There was a 50% reduction in the risk of serious hemorrhage by using progesterone in that trial. Now that was ignored by the the, the trial people. They said, "Oh, this is too dangerous. We can't continue with the, with the study because not giving the follow-up misoprostol." Is a, it poses a great danger. So if a woman takes mifepristone, she must follow up with her misoprostol or she's in danger of severe hemorrhage. The second point that, that it was largely ignored by the, um, but had to be reported, but largely ignored by the, um, the, the, the key people in the study who drew up the conclusions was that of the five women who took progesterone, four of them were still pregnant at 15 days. One had lost uh, the baby. Um, and she had quite low levels of progesterone compared to some of the others. Of the five women who took placebo, two of them were still pregnant. So that basically proved with that very small scale study what we've been saying all along, that you double your, your chance of retaining your pregnancy. Now, it is only 15 days and so babies can be lost after 15 days. Um, so it's important when we're giving treatment that we continue it for several weeks. As I said to, as I said to all of the girls, it takes one pill mm-hmm possibly to kill the baby, but it takes several weeks of treatment to, to save the baby. So the study that, that they, they tried to say demonstrates the, the dangers of, of, of what we're doing uh, actually demonstrates the opposite. It demonstrates that you, giving progesterone is you're twice as likely to save your child than if you just take, that if you do nothing or just take placebo, and you're half as likely, 50%, um, you're much less likely to have a serious hemorrhage than if you do nothing. 
keep in mind that the ad- advice given to these women by the Royal College of Obstetricians, by the abortion providers, is that if a woman changes her mind, the best thing she can do is do nothing. Just don't take the second pill if you've changed your mind. Uh, we would say that that's not good medicine, that uh, a given progesterone, the facts suggest, again, I have to be careful, I don't promote this, but the facts, the scientific fact from the study, very limited study, a small-scale study, suggests taking progesterone, you double your chance of the baby surviving if you change your mind, and you, if you, compared to not doing anything, you have the risk of serious bleeding. Uh, and that would be, I think, most independent uh, persons interpreting that study that that's what they would come up with whereas the it was it was it's been used by the the pro abortion people and to demonstrate that what we were doing was was dangerous was making women bleed when we know it's the mifepristone that causes bleeding not progesterone doesn't cause bleeding it prevents bleeding or reduces the the likelihood of, of bleeding well what i find uh there's a few things i find interesting in there in in what you said first of all i think one of the things that that really got to me about this story to begin with, not just to mention that just just the sad truth that now there's women and children that are are being denied this this service right now. But one of the things that really stuck out to me is that this hasn't been something that was really common to offer this treatment in the UK. As you had mentioned, it's been here in the US since um, 2012, I believe you said. And yep. it's something that and I'm just somebody who is on the outside looking in, but it's something that I've been relatively aware of and familiar with as being a treatment option for a number of years. And so you also have all of the success, as you had mentioned here in the U.S. and and in Canada to a smaller extent of these women who have gone and and have had the reversal treatment and or the the, uh, rescue treatment, as you had called it, and and then have um, have gone on to to give birth. And so that was one of the things that stuck out to me, but also as you're sharing here, how one of the issues that they had with this is that the progesterone wasn't um, originally meant for this, but as you mentioned, Mifepristil uh, was not originally meant for, for Mifepristil. Um, yes. The second drug. Oh, sorry. Yes. For it wasn't, a, wasn't originally um, meant for abortions. Um, and so that was something yeah. that stuck out to me. But another thing is that, you're saying that currently what women are being offered as the alternative here, as the alternative to the to the treatment that that you have been doing is to simply not take the second pill. But if I understood you correctly, you also said that one of their arguments against your treatment is that you have to take the second pill or it increases the, the risk of the woman hemorrhaging. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's that's what I am. So in a way, that it, it, it demonstrates the inconsistency. Sure. So, for example, Mitchell, Mitchell Crinan, the, the California-based uh, investigator, he would say that if you take the first pill, you must follow up with the second pill because by not doing so, you're you're risking. And the, the, again, in theory, he may be right. There, there may be an element that it's possible that misoprostol, by causing uterine contraction, womb contraction, might reduce the risk of bleeding. However, if a woman is desperate to save her child, um, most of them are prepared to, because to, I explained to them that, that that is a possibility that there might be some uh, heavier bleeding than than if she went ahead and took the uh, second pill. But these are women, member who've come to us. We're not enforcing them to to take this this treatment we're offering. And in fact, uh, I we, we I've had nine, I had 92 calls, and about um, I think 60, 62, 63 of them actually commenced. So about 30 of them decided after I'd explained to them what, what was involved, they decided no, they they were going to go ahead. 
with, with the abortion. Now, mm. that's very sad for us, but there's nothing I can do. And if a woman is not completely on board, there's no point trying to persuade her in, in that situation. And very often, the vast majority of cases, it's pressure from a boyfriend or a husband or a partner or families from someone. Because uh, the reason that they come to us is because they know that they're they're doing something that they didn't really want to do in the first place, but they feel compelled that they have no option because of pressures from, from elsewhere. So we're, we're always very sensitive and sympathetic to them. But uh, we certainly don't force our beliefs on them. We, you know, we allow them to, to, to make the decision ultimately. But if they really want to save the, the baby, uh, we give them whatever help we can. To, to speak to the experience of the mothers for a moment, um, would would you be able to explain for anybody who's who's tuning in to the to the show would you be able to explain what a mother goes through when she does do a DIY at home abortion what what does this process entail and what are some of the things that that she's going to run into in this yeah it's um but it's very variable it'll vary it it varies on the the woman the the, the individual person herself it'll vary on the stage of pregnancy so for example um now when a woman has a normal period uh, the reason that, that that the womb is shed in a period is that progesterone levels drop off so you got to build up a progesterone in preparation for pregnancy if pregnancy doesn't occur progesterone levels drop off and by the fourth week uh, the womb starts to shed so so the the abortion providers correctly to some extent they, 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 when medical abortion became available, they, they sold it as well. It's just like having a heavy period. And to some extent, and sometimes it is just like having a heavy period, but the later in gestation that goes on, the much more heavy and much more painful, um, th- th- that period or miscarriage is going to be. Because if you, if you think about it, if, if a woman is seven weeks or eight weeks or nine weeks pregnant, there's a much larger bulk of womb tissue, of lining of the womb. The endometrium is much bulkier many more blood vessels, bigger blood vessels than if she was only you know, th- three weeks into her period or four weeks into her period before she sheds the, the, the natural lining of, of the womb. Um, so so in that sense, it'll be much more, it's almost always going to be much heavier than having a normal period. It will also be much more painful for, for most women, not all, some, you know, it depends on the, the how able an individual is, is able to tolerate pain. So some have a higher threshold than, than others, but it generally is very painful for at least a number of hours. Sometimes the bleeding and the pain can persist for several days or even occasionally for several weeks. We, I, I've had a, a number of the girls where, in fact, and some of the girls were who actually didn't actually take the progesterone, but decided to just go ahead with the abortion where they've had uh, you know, a difficult time where the, the the symptoms have continued for several weeks afterwards. There is a risk. I mentioned that there's a, there's a 98 to 99 percent chance that the abortion will occur if they take both pills. But sometimes, even even if the the baby is killed, even if the he's not he or she is no longer viable, uh, the it may not always be everything may not always be passed. So there is a risk of infection if there is tissue retained within the womb not completely expelled there is risk of infection so it's important that these women especially if they've got ongoing symptoms get followed up ideally they should all have ultrasound scans done to see you know in whatever the situation if they decide to continue with the pregnancy we need to make sure first of all that the baby is still viable because we don't want to be giving them progesterone high dose treatment which does have some side effects it's not entirely harmless a lot of women will get nausea uh, because the reason that women get sick in pregnancy, especially in the early stages, is 
progesterone level largely. So we give them high doses for three days usually. So and most of them will have some nausea. Again, not all of them. Some will be more affected than others. Some of them will have headaches. Some will have dizziness. So the treatments are not entirely uh, symptom-free, uh, but most of the women who are desperate to save their babies are happy to put up with those symptoms, especially if, if it's usually only for about three days. Uh, so, But if the woman decides to go ahead with the, with the abortion, so they will... Uh, they will suffer bleeding, pain. There's the risk of infection. There's about a. It's difficult to know because uh, when a woman attends the ER department with a miscarriage, uh, she may or may not reveal that she's taken abortion pills. So a lot of women don't want it, and understandably, don't want it on their medical record that they have uh, they've induced their own abortion or that they've received help in inducing an abortion. So they will tell the, the attending doctor, "Oh, I was pregnant. I'm seven weeks, but I'm bleeding heavily. I'm having a miscarriage." And the doctor has no way of knowing have they taken um, the abortion pills or not. Have they taken the first abortion pill? Have they not taken the first abortion pill? Have they taken two abortion pills? And in fact, that, that, um, that my, my situation is that I'm not allowed to prescribe or administer or recommend progesterone for abortion reversal treatments. But if if I was in an ER department, which is unlikely to happen, uh, to, to, and if a woman came in with a miscarriage, if I knew she had taken the mifepristone, I'm not allowed to give her progesterone. Mm. If I thought she hadn't taken mifepristone and she was having a natural miscarriage, I'm allowed to give her progesterone. Um, so it's, 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 it, it demonstrates something. I'm, again, I'm not allowed to be too critical of it, but sure. people can take their own uh, meaning from that. And, and it could happen. It could happen that a, that a young woman will be under my care, uh, maybe for a, with a cardiology problem, but she happens to be pregnant. And then while she's under my care, she starts to bleed from the vagina and she's suffering a miscarriage. And if I know she has taken mifepristone, I can't do anything to help her. If I don't know she's taken mifepristone, I'm, I'm allowed to give her progesterone. I'm only not allowed to give it for abortion reversal treatments. And that is the treatment that they would receive if she attended an ER department with, um, in pregnancy, early pregnancy with, with bleeding. Uh, the only treatment option is either do nothing or, or give her progesterone. You now, regardless of whether or not mifepristone is involved, um, that probably says something. Yeah, I find it interesting that and and of course the organization that had kind of uh i guess for lack of better words come after you uh MSI reproductive choices and i just i find it interesting that some of their argument is that um i mean of course they're they're saying that that there's a danger for the mother but they're also having this argument that there could be dangers for the baby and it's just strange to me that a um an organization that provides abortion suddenly seems to be be concerned about danger to to the baby i just find that interesting they, they have to be very careful because if they, they they do acknowledge and they have to acknowledge that progesterone is very safe because if they don't if they if they try to say progesterone per se is dangerous most of these people are involved in ivf infertility management that's a very very lucrative business mm. so if they're coming out saying oh the treatment we're giving women is not safe then they, they're basically <laughs> they're they're destroying their own practice uh, by doing that. Sure. And similarly, if they say that oh, mifepristone is dangerous to the baby, then you could equally argue, well, then you shouldn't be given you shouldn't be inducing abortions by medical means in the first place if it's if it's dangerous. So they have to be very careful and come up with these clever arguments that really that they're they're irrational with no basis to them. That the arguments that they like they, they, there was ten or eleven arguments against me. One of the arguments against me was that I wasn't following the guidelines for abortion care. Now, I wasn't providing abortion. I was trying to help women prevent an abortion. It was, it was just, they were just thinking of anything they could come up with. Um, 
another one was that um, that oh yeah, I, I um in, in many cases, in fact, all of the cases um in, in the UK, most women are in, are used to having, and most patients, not just women, patients receive free medical care. We have in, in National Health Service, and while you do have to pay for a prescription, it's a nominal fee. You don't have to pay uh, exorbitant amounts of money for for medications, usually, except for maybe some cancer drugs. Um, so most of the girls, they're not used to um, paying for medications. So when they get the abortion pills, they're free. Uh, the, the, the taxpayer, so I and the millions of others, have to pay for the abortions, unlike in, in your situation. I know there's a lot of debate going on at that at the moment in the U.S., mm-hmm. but we, we have to pay basically to, to fund the abortion service here, which we don't like. Um, so they get their, their medications free. They get their abortion pills free. But because progesterone, when I was offering it to patients, uh, does not, it wasn't on the, the, the normal NHS prescription. It was a private prescription. So I had to tell them after they had, and I only did it after they had agreed to go ahead. I said, by the way, I do have to tell you that this is not an, a normal NHS prescription. So we will, I, I always said we will have to pay for it. Now, but most of the girls have said, that's fine. How much is it going to be? And it would be roughly £10 a week. So if I gave them two weeks treatment, it would be about £20, three weeks treatment, about £30. And it's a little more expensive the first two days because they would a high dose for three days. So I said, however, and in every case, I said, however, if that's a problem, I'll pay it for you. Because hmm. I said, don't let cost be the reason not to do this. If you're not going to do it, that should be for some other reason, but not, it shouldn't be because sure. you can't afford to do it. And similarly, I said, it's very important that we get you a scan uh, because we have to find out, first of all, make sure you don't have an ectopic pregnancy because a lot of them won't have had scans already. Ideally, they should have had scans to, uh, to find out, you know, the, the location of the, of the, of the baby and also to the exact sort of gestation time as well. But a lot of them, because of the, the pills by post, they can get it over the telephone without having to see anyone. They, they, they didn't have scans. More than well over 60% didn't have scans. So it's very important that we organize a scan very early after starting treatment. Number one, to see was the, was the baby still viable? Was there a heartbeat? Um, was everything looking okay? And second, to make sure there wasn't an ectopic pregnancy. So some some of the regions, because of COVID, there's a lot of restrictions on medical practices uh, over here and ability to access some medical services is um, uh, is, is difficult in, for, in some regions. So I, I always told the girls that, you know, the best thing is, if possible, to register with your, if you haven't already done so, register with your early pregnancy unit, maternity unit and try and get a scan done, ideally within a week, within a few days or within a week of, of starting the treatment. However, I said to them that if, because I had to acknowledge that that wasn't always possible for them, if that's a difficulty, you know, we can arrange a private scan for you. There are lots of private operators who, for money, will, will do a scan at short notice. And I said, and if that's a problem, I'll, I'll pay for you mm. or I'll contribute to the cost. That'd be about £70 a scan. So on a number of occasions, I paid for the treatment, I paid for the scans for some of the girls. Um, most of them said, no, that's fine. You're, you're, you know, I can't expect you to pay for my mistake. <laughs> but I was happy to do so. And you know, we had a little bit of money put aside uh, for that. However, one of the accusations against me was that I was, um, in, the, in one of the complaints was that I was um, manipulating these girls by paying for them, uh, which is highly irregular. There's no law against it. There's, uh, you know, doctors are allowed to give free services. They're allowed to you know, even pay for services. There isn't any law or any reason why I couldn't, but they thought that this was obviously some form of coercion. I was trying to manipulate the girls. I was trying to get them on my side, uh, force my beliefs on them. And then when a further complaint came in against me, it was that I, 
um, that I was charging exorbitant fees for for this service that I was offering. So they they can't have it both ways. Either I was you know out of charity giving <laughs> money to the or paying for the team, or else I was charging. And you know, neither was the case. I certainly wasn't. I never ever charged anyone. I always told the girls that this is you know, I don't charge anything. This is a free voluntary service. Um, but it just shows you the the extent that the the pro-abortion MSI in particular, but also the RCOG. We're, we're using, they're trying to build a case against us by thinking of any possible uh, complaint that, that they could consider. That's the Royal College of Obst- Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Yeah, they're, they're not innocent here. And I, I'm, I'm a pro- I think it's okay to mention it, that um, that they also had a complaint against me. That uh, So Mary Stopes had one complaint and the RCOG as well. And they were, they were put together in, in one package and put to the General Medical Council who endorsed them, which was disappointing. But that Maybe they felt they had to, uh, but one of the one of the complaints was that um, because of myself and Eileen, because of our Christian background, that we basically that we couldn't be trusted because we were Christians, that we were enforcing our beliefs on these vulnerable uh, women. Um, again, I'll say no more on that. But that was one of the complaints that uh, that we have to demonstrate. Because now I I have had some very good witness statements from many of the women that I've helped. Some of them have already gone forward into the into the public arena. The, I think you, you saw the Daily Mail article. I think two of the young women were, and not not all that young, mind you. Two of the women were were quoted about the service that I had offered them. And there'll be this, I believe, there'll be another one this weekend on a slightly different issue. But uh, she's been asked about her experience with under my care, I think. Um, but they, they all, none of them, I never mentioned the Catholic Medical Association, mm. I never mentioned Catholicism, never mentioned religion, and, and they all said that. Sure. Um, even the, the girls who, some of them who went ahead with their abortion, one or two of them have come out and said, no, we, you know, we, we didn't even know. They, they probably thought by my accent and that I was Irish that, and by my name that I might be a Catholic, mm. but they didn't, for all I know, for all they knew, I could have been a pro-choice person that was just, um, respecting their choice that they wanted to save their pregnancy and that, you know, if they wanted to have an abortion that I, for all they know, I might have been advocating that as well. I never mentioned anything about pro-life. The only time I did, one girl did ask me after a few days after we'd sort of developed a relationship, which I did. I I, I had a lot of, uh, provide a lot of support to these women and kept in contact with them on a daily basis just to make sure they were okay, they weren't having any bad side effects. And if they were, you know, to give them some advice, whatever I could do to help them. Because I knew they weren't getting it from their local. If they went to the local doctor, the doctor would say, you have to go back to Mary Stopes or to B-Pass. If they went to B-Pass, they'd say, no, no, you have to go to your GP. Uh, so they were, they were in a catch-22 situation when nobody was prepared to offer them any help in many situations. So I, I contacted them every day and I built up relationships. And one, one girl just after a few days asked me, by the way, can I ask, are you, are you a Catholic? Hmm. Because her dad, had, her dad had been a Catholic and she, she just wanted to know. And another girl, again, after a, a week or two, asked me, how did you get involved in this rescue treatment? And I had to tell her about being a member of the Catholic Medical Association and that we were, had been approached by a number of pro-life organizations to see could we do anything to help women who are crying out for help. So that's what it was basically a response to a cry for help. Hmm. Do you have a few minutes left, uh, Dr. Carney? I want to sure. be... be- as long as, as long as you want. Respectful of your time. So, um, no, no, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm free. You had mentioned some of those, um, some of those women who've given testimony and, and it's out and it's, and it's public. So I think it's fine for me to, to say this. Um, but this is from the, from the Daily Mail. It says, um, uh, three women he helped are to give evidence in his defense. One of them 
Laura, which they're they're using a, a pseudonym there. Yeah. Laura said, without Dr. Carney's help, the alternative would have been horrific. I wouldn't have been able to forgive myself. I'd be racked with guilt, with the shame of what I did for the rest of my life. He was so supportive, compassionate, and completely non-judgmental, and there was no mention of religion. And um, yeah, so that's that's what Laura's saying. And and I believe this is the same woman here, but it, it correct me if I'm wrong, but I know they had mentioned one of these women was in a relationship that she wasn't sure if it was going to continue on. They had a child already. Um, and the, the baby's name here is Charlie. And she was describing that she kind of waited until the very last moment to take this at home DIY pill because she really wasn't sure if she wanted to do this. And uh, I just when 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 I had asked earlier about the experience that these women go through, and I'm not saying that this is the same experience that every woman's going to have, but she says she she ended up going forward with with taking the pill. And she says, yet the instant or sorry, the article, I should say, says yet the instant she swallowed the first pill, she was flooded with regret, collapsing to the kitchen floor and clawing desperately at her throat until it bled in a bid to make herself sick. It's a horrendous image and one Laura struggles to relive. So, yeah, that was Laura. And then she said here, and this was probably the most important part to me, she she says in the end of the article, Charlie, that's her her baby, Charlie's only here, she says, because Dr. Dermot Carney provided her with an unlicensed antidote to the abortion pill, a decision that could see him struck off, which um, I'm not from... I'm not from the UK, so I don't know what struck off if that's a if that's a UK uh, term. But yeah, yeah, it is. It's it, what it would mean that um, if the, if the GMC and their investigation, if they find that these allegations are so serious that I pose a threat to public to to the public, uh, then they, I could be deregistered. That means I would no longer be able to practice as a doctor in the United Kingdom or probably anywhere in the world because they would have influence elsewhere too. So so struck off means you're, you lose your license. And so I think that's something else that's really important for people that are that are hearing us right now to to understand is that what is potentially being threatened here is is not simply that you you'll no longer be able to to offer these services to women who who have changed their mind but they are looking at the potential of you losing your medical practice across the board. Yeah. So so at the moment we have been um, we're allowed to practice, myself and, and Eileen. We both have similar, even though they're two different cases. Um, her case was brought by, wasn't MSI, I think it was the Royal College of Obstetricians. Um, but I can't, I'm not quite sure on that. But she had slightly different um, um, charges against her, if you like. Uh, but we both had the same sentence in that we're allowed to continue practicing under investigation and with some restrictions or what they call conditions to our practice. And there is five or six and we had to inform our, you know, the hospital authorities of, of, of these restrictions. But the, the main one for me was that, that I'm not allowed to, he must not prescribe, administer or recommend progesterone for abortion reversal treatments. That's the main one. So I'm allowed to do my normal cardiology work, my normal emergency care work, but I must not um, do that type of work. I'm also not allowed to do any sort of voluntary work. So, for example, I used to go on a on pilgrimage to 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 a place, Lourdes in France with uh, a place of pilgrimage with with 
you know, sick people, invalids, and help on a, an annual basis for a week. And I wouldn't be allowed to do that unless I have expressed permission from the GMC to to do so. And again, I'm not sure whether they would give it in, in that in that context. Um, so, um, and Eileen is similar. Eileen's an obstetrician, so she's slightly different. She is allowed to work as an obstetrician, so she has to pre- prescribe progesterone. So they were a little bit different in so she in, in the orders against her, but she's not allowed to do any work outside of her normal NHS practice. And it has to be done, and she has to have somebody supervising to make sure that that's the case, that she doesn't uh, you know, prescribe this off-license use of uh, progesterone for, for this uh, uh, rescue treatment. So we both more or less got the same treatment, so we're not allowed to do this work. But we are allowed at the moment to still work as doctors, providing we obey the rules. Um, it's unfortunate because we, we know that, for example, I asked Heartbeat International to keep a record of the number of women who are still contacting them. And now because of this, there will be a lot more publicity. So more women will be aware of this hmm. possible uh, treatment if they change their mind, whereas they wouldn't have known about it before. So maybe that might be might be a good thing. I, I don't know. Yeah, but they've had in, guys, yeah. Yeah, there was about 20 in, in the month of May. So we we stopped we stopped offering the service because uh, we got the allegations against us at the end of April. So the month of May, there were 22 calls from the UK to um, to Heartbeat International. There were another three of the other pro-life organizations informing me that they also received calls, uh, one each. So that was 25. There might have been some overlap. Some of those three might have already uh, rang Heartbeat International. I also suspect that maybe a small number might have been set, um, set up uh, sting operations to try and catch us out to see where we still do in this when we'd been told not to. So that's because that's how Eileen actually was was a victim of a sting operation. Uh, she I took a call in in good faith and offered to help a young woman who, in the UK who seemed to be, but she, she seemed to be looking for help. But she was an undercover journalist for a um, a left wing magazine or website mm-hmm. that. Exposed her. They thought it was a great achievement, but she was just being very nice to them and offered a, a very sympathetic service. Uh, but then they stabbed her in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, I may, I think I might have had one or two attempts at that, but again, there was nothing because I was always very consistent and very sensitive to to any information that they gave me, and I always just told them the truth. We were very, very open about this. I, I just want to mention that there. I think this is important. Like we, this was not. Um, a hidden covert operation. We were very open. In fact, I gave a, a talk to the UK Parliament in, the, in early March. There was a, a, a parliamentary committee um, meeting on DIY abortion because DIY abortion is, is, is allowed in the, where they send the pills by post and the women can take it at home without having to see a doctor. And that's sort of an emergency measure that has been allowed by the government. Um, Due to you know, COVID or... Due to COVID, mm-hmm. yes, and it's, it's still going on, and there is a, a danger that, that that might be allowed to continue. So there is an attempt uh, to try and uh, you know, put restrictions on it. So there was a, a parliamentary UK meeting that I was asked to talk about the the, the medical concerns uh, and you know about coercion and not knowing who you're giving the medication to, and not not knowing if they're going to be used in the way that uh, that they're supposed to be used, and not knowing the actual gestation. So, for example, there was one well-documented case in this country where a woman took the abortion pills at 28 weeks, which is well beyond the, the legal oh, wow. limit for, for abortion, 28 weeks, and had a successful abortion. That, that's, that would qualify as murder or, or at least homicide or uh, manslaughter against the law. So that's been investigated. So there were genuine concerns about DIY abortion. But I was also asked to just to speak for 10 minutes on 
the abortion pill rescue service. So I gave a full explanation to the parliamentary committee and any member of parliament was invited to come along and listen. And then I, I saw later then that two, two MPs were uh, thought that this was out, when the, when the report came out that the doctors were doing this sort of so-called dangerous treatment uh, to two MPs who had the chance to come to the meeting that I you know, openly expressed what we were doing said that this was terrible and women were being put at risk and this has to be stopped, uh, this secret operation. And the other even more uh, distressing issue is that I'm, um, I, I sit on a GMC, a General Medical Council, so they're the, they're the people who took the case against us. I sit on one of their committees for equality, diversity and inclusion. I'm a rep- I represent the Catholic Medical Association on that. And we have to give, we meet a couple of times a year and we had a Zoom meeting in April. So several weeks before the allegations were made known to us. And I was asked to just to give a, a brief account of the activities of the Catholic Medical Association in, in, in the preceding months. And I, you know, just told everybody, including the, the chairperson, the chair of the, CEO, of the GMC and the, the, the CEO, the chief executive of the, who were all present and Several other high-ranking people were there, and I said, well, a number of our members, I didn't say how many or who they were, a number of our members have been involved in helping women uh, who regret taking the first uh, abortion pill and have changed their mind, and they we offer them progesterone. So I explained everything hmm. uh, for about five minutes, and nobody said, oh, that's terrible. You, you can't be doing that. And yet two or three weeks later, the GMC take me, accused me of uh, offering or being a danger to, to women. Um, so it's, there's a lot of inconsistencies and uh Hypocrisy, I suppose. So that's why we're challenging the case. So we're, we're taking, we're, we're going to, you know, to try to challenge it to get them to look again. Mm-hmm. Because the, 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 our real concern is that uh, women are being denied a service that could, again, I, I'm not allowed to promote it, but there's a possibility that, that, uh, if the service was, was available, that some, in some situations, you know, babies could be saved, uh, you know, with the mother's wishes and the mother's consent. Well, I had, um, as I had, I think I had mentioned in the beginning here, I had yep. some folks that tune into the podcast that had asked some questions and then um, some folks that were also asking some questions via some uh, subreddits. And it, it looks like through the through the process of our conversation here today, we've we've answered a lot of those. But one of the folks who uh, who tunes in on a on a regular basis to the show had this question and they wanted to know essentially what is it that that keeps you from being discouraged and uh, and i'm also going to note too because she she wanted you to know this and and it was important to her but she wants you to know that you're in her prayers um and as well as these these mothers and their and their children i guess her question is you know how how do you keep going and then if we could also maybe tie into that some advice that that maybe you would have for other medical professionals that that find themselves in situations where they feel like they're they're either hindered from doing something that they feel it, they're morally obligated to do or or they're being told to do something that's that's in direct opposition to their to their conscience yeah. so they're good questions are the um the amount of support including prayer that we have received myself and Eileen uh, has been uh, uh, has been it's been humbling it's been overwhelming so we know that we're not alone so that certainly keeps us going. Um, it, it was good that it, it would have been much more difficult for me, and I'm sure Eileen would say the same for her, if we had been if we'd been just a single person. So the fact that 
well, I don't wish anything bad on Eileen, and she just doesn't wish anything bad. I mean, the, the fact that there was two of us rather than just sure. one, I think, was a help. But it was also great to know that we've we've had some some many messages of support from all over the world, and uh, not only from the UK but from the US, from Canada, from Australia, a number of places in Europe, uh, Ireland. Um, and so the, the amount of support that we're getting is, is tremendous. The, the newspaper article in the Daily Mail, or the, the Mail on Sunday that you mentioned, was also very supportive because um, it, it was an honest attempt to put it, because they, they presented both sides of the argument and they presented the witness statements uh, from, from the women. And the really, if someone really wants to know anything about this, they've got to ask, they got to ask the people who are most affected by it. And that's the, that's the women who come looking for help. They're the ones who are driving this. They're the ones that, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be doing this service. We're only doing it because they've, they've been demanding it or asking for it. So they're the ones really that the, the GMC should be speaking to. Not, not me, not, not Barry Stopes. It's the people who are most affected by this. So, so the level of support that we're receiving, but also the level of, the amount of prayer. Mm. And uh, I think I was, I was asked this question or a similar question by another journalist in the, the National Catholic Register about my does my faith play a role and it certainly does I think if I didn't have a faith um, it would be much more difficult and you know we're told so many times you know do not be afraid have courage in the Gospels and you've got to stand up blessed are those who you know stand up for for justice and blessed are you when when you're persecuted and people speak evil against you so you know when you're you're reminded of these little passages that you thought wouldn't be uh, applicable to your life but they they come home with with moments like this and uh, there's a there's a an actress in the u.s uh, i think i i I want to quote this because um a lady called patricia heaton Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, everybody loves raymond uh, she's well known in hollywood yeah, I, I don't actually, I've never seen that program, but I know about Patricia Heaton. Um, she was asked, because she, she's quite open about her faith and her stance on pro-life yeah. issues. And she's one of a few, she's one of not, not too many in Hollywood among the elites Correct, would, yeah. uh, would take that stance. And she's often asked, or she was asked once, you know, why are you not afraid to um, express your, your pro-life views, your religious, your faith views, uh, when you know, it won't be popular among, among the, the Hollywood elite? And she gave a great answer. She said, well, it's not Barbara Streisand I'll be standing before <laughs> on Judgment Day when I have to give account of my life. And I, I say the same. It's not the GMC I'm going to be standing before on Judgment Day. So we, we've got to do, you know, we've got to know what's right and we've got to do what's right. Uh, now, if, if evidence came out that what I was doing was dangerous, if, if there was evidence to say that, you know, women were suffering terribly because I would be the first to say, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm not going to do this mm. anymore. I'm sorry for the harm it caused. But we know that that evidence is not there. We've got nine years of safety evidence, efficacy evidence. So, um, but but if it did, I would be hopefully humble enough to say, "Sorry, I made a mistake. Um, hands up, you got me." Sure. Um, so yeah, so faith plays a role, and just keep in mind that this is one small issue among. Uh, there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture out here. There, you know, there's a there's a spiritual warfare going on. I, I think it's a very important that we pray for. Our opponents, for those who are, you know, taking on these chart, these cases against us, people who are advocating abortion, people who are involved in the abortion industry themselves, because they are very much, I would think in many cases, victims themselves. They've been misled, misguided, miseducated. Sure. Somewhere along the way, you know, I, if I walked in their shoes, maybe I would have a different point of view. So we need to pray for them that they will be inspired by the Holy Spirit to realize the but what they're doing is is not good and is not right and is certainly not good for women or babies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned the 
the the spiritual component to it and um and I can struggle sometimes um I talk about a lot of hot button issues on the show and there's definitely times where I get um emotional and I and I show that um but I think it's important too that we can speak the truth and love to people and that we can do it in a way where we don't back down from our convictions, but we also do it in a manner where I shared one time with, with a group of folks that I, that I had an opportunity to, uh, to give a sermon to, I shared uh, that we need to be careful that when we're engaged in that spiritual battle, which it truly is a spiritual battle. I mean, you, you're talking about children's lives here, but when we're engaged in, in those types of situations, we need to be careful that we look at the people that we're doing that battle with, with compassion rather than contempt. And I think that like you had said there, that a lot of these folks, well, all of these folks in, in, in my view, they've, they've been led astray. Um, there is that spiritual component to it and it can be, be, be very easy to, to have that that feeling of contempt if if you're not careful but we've got to we've got to show that compassion we've got to stand for what we believe in and not back away um but do it with the with the right heart attitude and i uh actually i think it's your it's on your twitter it's on your twitter handle because we kind of met up here via twitter um but you say something on your twitter handle in your profile there to along the lines of it's your goal is always to inform and educate never to um you know, humiliate. That's right. Never to, uh, never to humiliate. Um, and I, I go back and forth, but I struggle there. Um, but you know, just, just that idea that we need to speak the truth in love and keep that spiritual battle in mind. And I actually think, I, I don't know when, when we were trying for about 20 minutes to get the podcast, uh, get the recording software to work, I was thinking to myself, Hey, is this, maybe this is a spiritual battle right here, but it was, it's probably just me not knowing how to use a computer, but <laughs> Um, who knows? I have one more, one, one other thing before we wrap up. And I was just wondering, um, considering that I would say about 95% of the people that, that tune into the show are in North America and, and the majority of those are, are in the U S but, um, whether we're, whether we're in the U S or whether someone's tuning in from the UK outside of prayer, um, is there anything else anyone that's, that's hearing this today can do to, to kind of help in your situation or is, or is prayer the main thing? Well, prayer, prayer is certainly the main thing. And that's the one thing that you know, can be, and that is probably more than anything else as what has sustained us, I think. But I suppose uh, creating an awareness, again, I have to be careful here that I'm not publicizing what, what I've been doing, but creating an awareness of the issues and um, recognizing that, uh, that women are under pressure. Like the, the reason that I, I, I have to say I have a deep love for all all of the women that I've that have contacted me over the the last twelve months. I've I, I just I have a profound love for for them all, and I feel so upset when they when they get hurt, when they lose their babies, or when their boyfriend tells them he's going to leave them if they don't go ahead with the abortion. I just mm. feel so upset, and on many occasions I was I was. I was going to say, I can't do this anymore. It was just too emotionally demanding or upsetting. So I have a great uh, sympathy for women in this situation. So we need to be, I suppose, create an awareness that uh, women are under pressure to do things that they don't really want to do. 
that they most of the mothers that I have dealt with desperately wanted to keep their babies, even those who ultimately didn't go ahead with the treatment and decided to opt for taking the second abortion pill. Most of them, deep down, they really wanted to. So, But they were being put into terrible situations mm. by mostly by their people in their lives, but sometimes by social services or by their doctors or by told them, they're saying that you're not fit to be a mother or you're, you can't go through with this. Um, so you've got to be aware that you know, women are under, so we've got to be very sympathetic, uh, sensitive to women, in, especially in early pregnancy. We've got to be aware of the pressures that they're under and do whatever we can to, to help them. And, you know, and, and that's why like crisis pregnancy centers are so important that they show women this is not the only option. Abortion is not the only way to go here. So we've got to make people aware of these other options. You can keep your baby yourself with help. You will need support. You need financial support, practical support, emotional support, social support. There's lots of, all of these supports are offered by numerous pro-life groups around the world. Um, so I think we've got to create that awareness and support all of those pro-life groups that are that are trying desperately to help women in, in these desperate situations and also help the men men I've become less sympathetic to men because men are the root, root of the problem in a lot of these situations but again they're victims the way they've been brought up to you know treat women the way that they do uh, which is not always very good to treat you know babies or unborn babies or to look on them as being you know something that's disposable and you know if we don't want it we don't have to keep it so men need to be educated and uh, thought of as well but i'd be particularly sensitive and towards the, the needs of the women in this situation but men have to be supportive well dr carney i uh i really appreciate you being here today and i'm just thankful that you've you've taken this opportunity to chat with me and um I'm I'm also thankful for the fact that um the work that you've been doing which which I support and uh and I think is a is a very commendable thing. Um I'm thankful for the very real impact it's had on people's lives like like Laura's life and like her little baby Charlie's life and um I know there's other people out there that that feel the same way so in those times where maybe discouragement creeps in or, or maybe the emotion of it all creeps in um, just know that there are many people out there that are, that are supporting you and praying for you and praying for these women and also praying for, I, I apologize. It's uh, Dr. Eileen Riley, Dr. Dr. Eileen Riley, who is, who is also facing this situation right now. Um, you'll both be in our prayers. These women and these children will be in our prayers. And I just really appreciate you being here today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Do you want to finish on a prayer? Do you want to finish with a prayer? Yeah, actually, it, it's, uh, if you don't mind, maybe if I could go ahead and pray for you uh, and, and Dr. Riley. Absolutely, yeah. If you, that would be beautiful. Sure. Lord, I uh, I thank you so much for for this uh, opportunity to speak with Dr. Carney. And as we both realize here, um, there is a very real spiritual battle that is occurring in this in this story. And um, we know, we've, we've read the book, we know the end, we know who ultimately wins, and we're thankful for that. I'm thankful for these, these two doctors, Dr. Carney and Dr. Riley, and their love for these women, their love for these babies, and their desire to 
to help these women who are coming to them and who have been convicted in their hearts that they've made a poor choice and, and they want to turn it around and they're willing to do anything they can to save the lives of their children. And God, I pray that whatever needs to happen in the UK, whether it is in the government, whether there are specific changes that need to happen within the medical community and even changes that need to happen in, in society where people can see the value of these treatments and also the value of the women and the children who are impacted most by these treatments, I pray that those changes could come. And I pray, Lord, that as we're waiting for those changes, that you would give encouragement and stamina to Dr. Carney, to Dr. Riley, and to really any medical professional who is um, who is trying to help or hoping in the future to help in this way. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you very much. Well, a big thank you to Dr. Dermot Carney for joining me on the show today. And thank you for tuning in. I want to encourage you, please share this with some people you know who care about pro-life issues. Thanks for tuning in. God bless. Hey, I bet you thought I was gone, but I'm not. And... Apparently, neither are you. If you don't mind, I'd love for you to do me a quick favor. Hit the subscribe or follow button in whatever podcast app you're using right now. I'll also ask you to review the show. If you do a written review, I might even read it on an upcoming episode. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, CastBox, Podcast Addict, or Podchaser, or at fairlyimportant.com slash love the podcast. Okay, I'm going to go for real now. You can go too.